Hey guys, this is AC, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how, y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Aswi, and joining me today are AC... What is up, guys? And Eric. Yes, sir. So on Saturday, the Lakers, without LeBron or Anthony Davis or Kyle Kuzma or Gasol or Wes Matthews, somehow blew out the Nets, who were only just missing James Harden. To be fair, neither team was at full strength, and both Kyrie Irving and Dennis Schroeder were ejected early in the third quarter, and also Kevin Durant was on a minutes limit. What do you guys think we can take away this game regarding how they might match up in the finals if they were to meet up? If they meet in the finals, the Nets are going to have a problem because the Lakers were shorthanded and it was very obvious the Lakers have two advantages. Of course, number one being size. Drummond went off for 20 and 10 and 22 minutes, which is ridiculous. And the Lakers play a disciplined defensive scheme that capitalizes on bad shooting, or not great shooting, rather. And that's only going to get better when they have Anthony Davis and LeBron James back into the fray. I don't know about that, Eric, but from what I saw, I saw a couple things that were very encouraging to me. For one, your man, Andre Drummond, looked really good. And it's not just because no one expected him to actually be good. It was so readily apparent that guys like Claxton and Aldridge just can't guard him, and they just can't get rebounds over him. He was bullying them like crazy. And that is very encouraging to see. I want to take it even further and think, man, imagine LeBron and Drummond playing together. Like, how fun would that be to watch? Especially since these guys aren't going to have a center to really stop them. Now, today when I was listening to a bunch of different sports talk shows, they were saying, oh, well, it's very clear that they need DeAndre to play. Remember, I don't say his last name because there's no more air in him. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of these guys were saying that DeAndre should play so that he could provide some level of defense because should they meet the Sixers in the playoffs, Embiid's going to have his way with them without DeAndre. And if either Davis or Drummond play, Claxton and Aldridge are not going to be able to contain them. Realistically speaking, if their hopes rest on the corpse of DeAndre, I feel very encouraged by what I saw the other day. So the thing I think that I'm most, I don't want to say happy, but I think bodes well about Drummond. He seemed not only in the Nets game to have like, a legit mismatch on the offensive end and on the boards, he also generally seemed to be learning very quickly. And I do understand Vogel changes defensive schemes, but he's gelling on the defensive end with the guys around him, which I wasn't expecting because I've never known him to be a particularly good defender in his Cavaliers days, nor his days in Detroit. So I'm bolstered somewhat. I feel a little more confident today than I felt Saturday before the game, having seen him on the floor against the Nets. To your point, Eric, Pete Zayas, who works for the Lakers, had some film breakdowns where he showed that Drummond, not only did he 
sort of make the right first read. But on second and third ball swings, he was there contesting at the three-point line. Because one of the things that Drummond brings that I think is a little bit underrated about his game is his speed. And we know that he's big and he can block shots, but he's actually pretty fast as well. And it seems like he's buying right into the Lakers scheme. And that kind of brings me to my next point of what I took away from this game. And that's that Frank Vogel legitimately is a defensive genius. Now, he's instilled this defensive identity in this team. You know, Unlike a lot of teams in the NBA, the Lakers will actually bench players if they miss too many defensive assignments. We saw that with Taylor Harden Tucker earlier in this season. And Vogel is very flexible with his schemes, and he adjusts them according to the personnel that he has. What's interesting was that in this particular game, he actually used a little bit of what we saw in that first match. If you remember when the Lakers faced the Nets before, that was a game without Durant, but LeBron played in that, and, and Harden was kind of the main cog of the offense. And Vogel had the Lakers trapping Harden at points in pick and rolls, kind of like they did last year against the Rockets. And it actually worked. Now, he didn't use it too much, but in the time that he did that, it really did mug the Nets offense down a bit. Yesterday, the Lakers did something a little bit different. They actually sent doubles to Durant when he was ISOing. And Durant actually even commented about it after the game. He said that they constantly had two on him and he had to make quicker and better reads. He had a lot of turnovers out of that. Now, part of that could be him being rusty. But what I like about that is it actually leverages the Lakers' best asset, which is their overwhelming athleticism and speed on the defensive end. They can be swarming at times, right? And you would think that a team like the Nets would be the worst team to try this against because they have so much team shooting and playmaking. And it does remain to be seen if it'll actually work against the Nets team with all three stars playing. But what often happens is the Lakers have the team speed to sort of contain in these three on four situations and then force the worst playmakers on the opposition to make decisions. There were a lot of times where the ball would swing to a guy like a Bruce Brown and he was in a position where he had to make that read. Instead of just finishing plays, they had to make the plays and it really did limit them. So that definitely struck out to me as well. One thing I noticed with Saturday's game Whereas the Lakers on help defense and switching, they always seem to be in the right assignment, right place. I noticed that the Nets were continuously missing help assignments. So that's something that I, I think I'm going to pay attention to with the Nets for the rest of the year. Because I don't know, in the playoffs, I, I will still say defense is a premium and I can see it being a problem against teams that have not the Nets firepower, but teams with actual offensive firepower. So Eric, you point out the Nets defensive struggles, and I, I think two things stuck out to me there. The first is that they need to collapse the paint because of the lack of shot blockers that they have. And that's going to be a problem even when they're at full strength. And we know that the Lakers are the best team in the NBA at putting pressure on the room, especially when it matters, when they have LeBron, have AD, they're going to put pressure on the rim. And so the Nets are going to have to collapse. And that's going to lead to a lot of long rotations when the ball is sprayed out to these three-point shooters. The other thing I noticed was that the Nets are the prevalent switching team in the NBA right now. They switch just about more than anyone. And that's in part because it's the one thing that James Harden is actually pretty good at doing. He switches often and that whole team, they kind of switch everything and they kind of bait you into playing this one-on-one -on -one game. Well, Dennis Schroeder showed me yesterday something that he's kind of shown throughout the season. He's a guy who destroys big men in switches. Even someone who's pretty mobile like Nick Claxton, he just blew right by him time and again. So you add that to LeBron James, one of the most, frankly, ruthless switch hunters in the NBA who will find the worst opponent 
And also Anthony Davis, who can kill anyone in a one-on-one, it makes switching against the Lakers pretty troublesome. So those are two problems when combined together, lack of room protection and their lack of ability to properly switch against the Lakers who exploit switches that I think are going to be struggles for them if they've met in a playoff series. So then my question to both of you is, when it comes down to it, is Drummond in their final five lineup? Or would you rather have Anthony Davis as your five and then run Schroeder, KCP, LeBron, and Kuzma with them? I mean, for me, I definitely would, in my final five, I'm, I'm having AD at the five, but I do think Drummond can give you significant contributions in 20 minutes or less. So I, I think that would be, against the Nets, the perfect role for him. I, I don't envision him being in their crunch time lineup, though. I guess to that point, he could also serve as like the bruiser, the guy who, you know, if they go into him or if he's bullying the ball down low on offense, you know, he'll bang them up a little bit. And that's something that they'll definitely be feeling the next day. So that has value in its own right, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, right, it's not just Drummond who's physical. The Lakers as a team are a very physical team. Alex Caruso is kind of jacked, right? LeBron James is is a tank. You know, they have a, a roster full of these tough guys, Markeith Morris, etc. And when they have their bang with someone like Drummond, those body blows start to add up. So if you're a team that primarily relies upon jump shots, you're, you know, you, you need those legs to be as rested as possible. And the more body blows you take, the harder it gets to hit those jump shots. It's the reason that the old adage, jump shooting teams don't win, was made. You know, obviously the NBA has changed, but I still think that you can wear on people. And I think that's ultimately what Drummond's role is going to be. It's interesting because Steve Nash was actually asked about Drummond being on the Lakers and how that might impact the matchups against them. And his response, this is before the game, was pretty much, yeah, they have Andre Drummond, but really they won the championship last year because they have the best small ball five in the NBA in Anthony Davis and the best small ball four in the world in LeBron James. That was Steve Nash's quote. So he's clearly looking at it like when it really comes down to it, the Lakers will still put AD at the five and LeBron at the four. And that's probably the right thing to do because of offensively no matter how good Drummond is if AD is at the four you're taking him away from the hoop and he better be hitting threes to keep pace with the Nets who are going to be scoring a lot almost no matter how good the Lakers defense is so yeah if he's hitting threes and maybe can get away with a little bit but I think ultimately all the bruising down low that Drummond can do Davis can be just as dominant down low as well and that's where you want him if you want the Lakers to actually win games like AD LeBron pick and roll where AD is near the hoop that was a threat to roll I like what you said, AC, because to analogize it, it makes me think of a boxing match. So the Lakers will go big early on, go to the body, give them all body punches. And then at the end of the game, you go for the knockout punch with 80 at the five, LeBron at the four. That's a great analogy. The only thing I will say as a caveat to all this is all of our analysis may not even be still accounting for just how dominant the Nets in theory could be when all three of those guys are there. Because for all the physical advantages the Lakers have, just the sheer volume of scoring is going to be really difficult to stop four times in, in seven games. So I'm not even entirely sure if the Lakers would be favored in that matchup. But I do think that there are certain physical advantages, not just size and strength, but also speed, that the team speed of the Lakers, and, and just the fact that they don't really have any defensive weak links, will make it really difficult for the Nets in, in a playoff series. Well, since you mentioned defense, one of the Lakers' best defenders in Dennis Schroeder 
along with Kyrie Irving, were tossed out of the game early in the third quarter because they received double technicals after Kyrie went up into Dennis's face. Then Kyrie kept yelling at Dennis and was thrown out. And as he was walking out, Dennis was thrown out for waving bye to Kyrie because, yes, the refs are as soft as it gets. And, you know, they love every second of spotlight they can get. So apparently now if you wave goodbye, you could get thrown out for it. I mean, that we could have a whole podcast on the refs completely exceeding their authority. This is actually the third straight game in a row where a Lakers player was ejected. And I would argue that all three times the ejections were unwarranted. And this has become almost a pandemic of injections lately. Agreed. Basically, every team is at a major star get eliminated from a game. And listen, this is a national TV game. Okay, you already out LeBron James, Anthony Davis, James Harden. It's ridiculous that they would just throw out, I mean, like Kyrie Irving is box office. You don't just throw a guy like that out because he's talking to someone and then continue to talk to him or someone for waving bye to him. Like we've got to change the standard, but you know, this is an aside. It's like they're not allowing chippiness now. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, look, guys just talking, that's good for the game. It's good for gamesmanship. It makes them play harder at each other. Now, this did have some after effects because after the game, Kyrie revealed that Dennis used the N-word while they're arguing. And video seems to confirm that Dennis said something to the effect of damn N-word, question mark, when Kyrie is up all in his face. And then Kyrie tweets about it. And his tweet reads as, The N-word is a derogatory racial slur. It will never be a term of endearment, reclaimed, flipped, in all caps. Never forget it is foul and true history. Throw that N-word out the window right alongside all those other racist words that we use to describe my people. We are not slaves or ends. So seeing as though AC and I are of South Asian descent, I, I don't think we are the best people to talk about this. So Eric, as a black man, I wanted to know how you feel. It's one of those things that are complicated. So the first thing I, I want to address a quote from Kyrie that you just read. At the end of the quote, he says, we are not slaves or ends. I have an issue with that. My ancestors weren't slaves. <laughs> they were enslaved. So his Framiology of how he conceives the N-word being used, I already found a little problematic. But that's a, a small point. But as a larger point, Kyrie has a right to not want someone to address him, even if it's a term of endearment, with the N-word. I, I, I've met Black people who don't like it. Now, admittedly, amongst family and friends, I do use the word. So I don't mind within my community. But that being said, I can't help but question Kyrie Irving's motivations for having such a vitriolic reaction to the word being used in regards to him by Dennis Schroeder. There have been, and, and I looked this up today, I saw four instances of Kyrie Irving using the N-word with other people in almost like a, a flippant manner. It, it just seems to me that He's criticizing and criticizing strongly something that, at least within as recent as two years ago, he used himself with ease. And I can't help but think, much like in the summer, where it seemed as if his insistence for players not to play in a bubble was self-serving after he got some criticism about him almost handling negotiations in a childlike manner. This, too, is something that's self-serving in a game where he was getting frustrated 
because Dennis Schroeder was getting the best of him, playing great defense on him, and, and just being a general irritant. Suddenly, Kyrie Irving has this huge national objection to this word. And then he goes out of his way to then go to Instagram and Twitter, social media platforms, and air out his grievances for the mass public about a word that the, the mass public probably shouldn't even be talking about or debating is something that should be in-house. So that's my problem with it. He gets to he gets to be addressed however he wants to. I do not appreciate the platform he used in order to address his objection. Interesting. Okay. Uh, thanks for sharing your perspective with us on that. Yeah, no problem. So... Guys, we are getting to the point in the season where the playoffs seem to be right around the corner. And quite frankly, the Western Conference playoff standings are fascinating. Right now, there are five teams, the Jazz, Suns, Clippers, Nuggets, and Lakers, who all have a legitimate shot to win the championship. Two of these five teams will be playing each other in the first round. This means that it's entirely conceivable that a Western Conference powerhouse with multiple stars like the Lakers or Clippers is eliminated in round one. As of right now, the Jazz are 40 and 13, whereas the Suns are 37 and 15. So the question is, who will get the one seed? So what's interesting here is that the prize for getting the one seed is not just home court advantage through the Western Conference playoffs, which by the way, is very important, even with limited fans, especially for a team like Utah, which is basically unbeatable at home. But the prize is also a near guarantee to not face the Lakers in round one, unless you think the Lakers are not only going to fall into the play-in game, but somehow lose the first game and then win the second game in the play-in tournament. That seems pretty unlikely to me. So it's a guarantee to at least avoid the Lakers for one round, which is something that even the number two seed can't necessarily say. So there's something really to play for here. When I look at this, I think that there is some part of me that wants to root for the Suns here and thinks that they, they can actually do this because I, you know, I love Chris Paul. I love what he's brought to the team. He plays so hard and he seems to care so much about winning these, ga- these regular season games. You can tell like he has the boys in Phoenix playing their ass off every night. But ultimately, the Jazz just have the easiest remaining schedule in the NBA. They have a you know, two-game lead over the Suns. And the Suns, on the other hand, unfortunately, have the sixth hardest remaining schedule in the NBA. So considering all of that, I think that it's unlikely that the Suns would catch the Jazz. So I'm going to say the Jazz get the number one seed. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> they are playing at the moment to not have to face the Lakers in, in round one. And it looks like the Lakers are either going to face probably the, the Clippers or Nuggets, which... That should be box office for uh, early round playoff series. But yeah, I mean, it, it seems like the Jazz should at this rate stay in, in first, but I'm not exactly sure. When I look at the Jazz, they just seem like the typical, I want to say like a Bud team, even though obviously Bud is not their coach, but it just seems like a team that is great in the regular season, has a lot of things going for them, but has certain glaring weaknesses that I feel make them exposed. So yeah, sure. They have the easiest remaining schedule. So by that virtue, they'll probably retain the one seed. But don't get me wrong. They're not actually the best team in the West, despite what many people might think. Though truly the key to figuring out potential playoff matchups is figuring out where the Lakers will place. Since realistically, they could finish fifth, sixth or seventh right now they're a fifth seed which is two games ahead of portland who are the sixth seed and they're three and a half games ahead of dallas who are the seventh seed so if the lakers fall to seventh that means they'll have to play in the play-in tournament to make the playoffs 
Now, to be clear, reports do say that Anthony Davis will be back in 7 to 10 days and LeBron will be back by the first week of May. However, the Lakers have the 7th hardest remaining schedule left, whereas Portland has the 3rd hardest remaining schedule and Dallas has the 2nd easiest remaining schedule. So with all this in play, where do you guys see the Lakers, Blazers, and Mavericks ultimately finishing? So when LeBron went down after AD was already down, all the talk was, and even on this podcast, that the Lakers would have trouble winning games, but instead, led by a defense that's actually improved in efficiency without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. That's an incredible accomplishment, by the way. They've been competitive in every single game. No matter who they're facing, they basically almost never get blown out. And they've actually managed at the time of this recording to have gone six and seven after LeBron went down. Now, they're not going to have AD for the game tonight that's going on as we're recording against my New York Knicks, go New York. And they're not going to have him for Charlotte or Boston and then two games against Utah, who I think will be very motivated to play hard in those games to potentially knock the Lakers down to the sixth seed. So then they wouldn't even face the Lakers in round two. And I could see the Lakers, you know, maybe at best going two and three in that stretch with how competitive they've been lately. But then you got to figure AD is going to be back for a crucial set of two games in a row against Dallas. And after that, the Lakers schedule gets easier. And Portland has a difficult remaining schedule, as you mentioned, Oswee. And Lillard's play has actually been a bit off lately. Plus, like all season long, Portland has been crushing the bad teams and playing really poorly against the good teams. So I am not that confident the Blazers will actually be able to catch the Lakers. In fact, because they have this negative point differential and Dallas has a pretty easy remaining schedule, I actually see Portland falling down to seventh and being passed by Dallas, which then means that those two games against Dallas, which I mentioned will have Anthony Davis most likely, will probably determine the Lakers finish fifth or sixth behind Dallas. The Blazers, you're right, AC, they've been beating up against bad teams the whole season. I I can't even think of any like, really signature wins they've had this season. It seems to me, and we spoke about this on an earlier podcast, where I said that I expect at some point Dame Lillard isn't going to stay. He can't continue to carry this team without legitimate, like elite secondary help. And this season is like a crystal clear indictment of that. So I, I do agree. I see the Mavs leapfrogging them within the next two weeks. So that doesn't bode well for their playoff future and the upcoming month. So then it will come down ultimately to where we see the Lakers versus the Mavs, which of those teams could get that fifth seed. I'm going to ultimately predict the Lakers stay in fifth place where they are right now. And Dallas winds up in sixth, and which means that Portland will be in seventh. My, my logic is, is basically if the Lakers play around 500 ball as they have been until their stars come back. I don't think Dallas, who have only gone six and four in their last 10 games and with some embarrassing losses to teams like the Rockets and the Spurs or Portland, who's also gone six and four in that in their last 10 games, are going to be able to make enough ground up. And once LeBron and AD are back, the Lakers are well positioned to close the season strong, especially when you consider that unlike a lot of teams, the Lakers have not had fans in Staples Center the entire season long. And it's been well reported that Stable Center feels cavernous and empty, and the Lakers are a pretty poor home record. Actually, they have a better road record than a home record. But they are fans coming back, so I think that's going to be a bit of a boost to their team. So it's not a guarantee, but if I had to predict it, I would say that the Lakers will stay in that fifth seed. I see what you're saying there. My concern, though, 
is that no offense, Eric, to your boy, but if Drummond is the marquee player of the Lakers, is that enough to keep them afloat? I'm not sure. We might predict that based on their difficult schedule or easy schedule in the case of Mavericks, they're more likely to lose or win. The only difference is they have that X factor. And that X factor is your Damian Lillard is your Luka Doncic. Whereas I just, I don't feel comfortable relying on all these role players and Andre Drummond to keep the Lakers afloat. Look, Oswee, we're not going to have you just keep throwing Andre Drummond under the bus, okay? Yo, okay, hold up, hold up. (laughs) Listen, 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 man. I am somebody who, if it's a LeBron team, I support it. So I'm very grateful to Andre Drummond coming in and doing what he did against the Nets twofold because one, it helped the Lakers and two, it helped the Sixers because with that loss, we became tied with the Nets again. At the same time, despite my gratitude toward him for what he did that night, I'm not exactly convinced that that is something that will work every night. It worked with the Nets because the Nets basically don't have a center, but there are teams with actual bigs who will be able to give some trouble to him. Now, the good thing is Anthony Davis is coming just around the corner, but man, it feels like it couldn't be any sooner because I just, I don't know. It feels uncomfortable to me as a supporter of a LeBron team. Uh, to your point, Oswee, by far the most important person for their team in terms of offense is LeBron, right? So even if AD comes back, there's no guarantee they're going to win without LeBron. I just think they've been competitive enough defensively that they're at least in a lot of these games. And ultimately, it's a team that's playing for something. They're playing with pride. They've, you know, they've given a fight against better teams and their schedule does ease up a little bit after especially after those two jazz games which i think are that's probably the hardest part of the stretch so there's a chance they could make a decent run after that so under the assumption that the lakers somehow get the fifth seed that would make the race for the third seed between the clippers and nuggets essentially a race to avoid the lakers in round one although it could backfire if somehow the lakers fall to the sixth seed so who do you guys see getting the third seed between the clippers and the nuggets I think it's going to be the Clippers because I I think they're a better team. And honestly, I doubt that they're going to not play up to their potential as to avoid the Lakers because, like you said, it could potentially backfire. You don't know. Like, the Lakers could end up in the sixth seed, and now you're stuck playing LeBron and AD in round one, and your playoff chances dramatically diminish. I want to give the Nuggets the benefit of the doubt here. While they have a harder schedule moving forward than the Clippers do, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to the Nuggets because while they have a harder schedule remaining than the Clippers do, they're led by the guy who basically at this point, the MVP race is his to lose. And I just don't see him slowing down. Now, the Clippers have had some injuries with Pat Beverly having some hand surgery. And while Pat Beverly is not a guy who is like a make or break it type of guy, not having him will definitely be a problem just because of his defense and how easily he can get into the head of his opponents. And when you're talking about the margins, it's these little things that really do add up. And also Paul George has been playing better now, but I still have to give the benefit of the doubt to the Nuggets here. So the Clippers and the Nuggets to me are the two most viable 
teams aside from a healthy Lakers squad to actually win the West. So these are the cream of the crop in my opinion. I would pick either of them over either the Utah or Phoenix. They both have legitimate MVP caliber top dogs and secondary stars as well and good rosters around them. Between them, I would probably say if they face it in a playoff series, even though the Nuggets won last time, I would feel that the Clippers would probably have a, a slight edge against them because I don't expect them to choke again and have everything kind of go wrong in those last three games. But when it comes to racing for the third seed, the Nuggets have a few more built-in advantages, even though they have a considerably more difficult remaining strength of schedule. The biggest reason is that Kawhi is going to be load managing down the stretch as he showed us recently when he load managed a game and also as also we mentioned Beverly's out meanwhile the Nuggets are gonna play Jokic to get him an MVP which I think means something to that team to have an actual MVP winner on, on a sort of a, a mid-market team and the Nuggets are still trying to incorporate Aaron Gordon and find their new identity both teams have more or less the same record of the last 10 games they both won 80 percent of their last 10 games so they're they're both pretty hot teams but i think the nuggets have more incentive to try to play well one other thing is that we can't forget the clippers complete lack of a home court advantage even when the stands are full there can't be another team in the nba that cares less about home court advantage than the clippers especially if they're facing the lakers i mean they're both playing in Staples arena and everyone knows that when there are fans it's going to be filled with lakers fans it's just That's just the reality of the fan bases in that city. One vastly outnumbers the other. On the other hand, Denver actually has an altitude advantage and a reason to play there. I always feel like when you play in Denver, they're going to go in a game or two just by the other team trying to adjust to that altitude. I mean, Michael Jordan used to always say that playing in Denver was the single worst arena to play in the NBA. So they have an incentive to actually try to go for home court advantage in at least the first round if possible. That's a fantastic point, AC, about the Clippers not being so press over home court advantage because they're visitors in their own home to say. Yep. It's funny because they could have all the streetlights over spotlights, all those things, but that's a Lakers town. And it's kind of a shame that if the Lakers do face the Clippers in, in a battle of LA, that we won't have the fans there because it would have been a cool atmosphere, at least for the Lakers, it would be. <laughs> about the Clippers. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 what's crazy about it, they're basically like stepchildren. So, yeah, like any game that they play against each other is an automatic Lakers home game. So, yeah. <laughs> it's worse than the Nets and the Knicks. At least the Nets have their own arena and a, a different borough. So they have their own identity. And at least people in Brooklyn will, in theory, show up for them versus the Knicks. Here, it's like the same arena. They literally cover the Lakers banners up when they play. I don't know if you guys knew that. It's actually Wait, it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, they every Clippers home game, they cover up all the Lakers banners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're covering up a lot of banners then that person has a busy job yep so let me guess when the lakers play they cover up the clippers b- wait <laughs> they don't cover up shit they don't clippers don't have anything <laughs> <laughs> you threw that shade purposely <laughs> you didn't figure that out mid thought <laughs> hey man i learned it from you so slander is life yeah So the Memphis Grizzlies right now are sitting at the eighth seed, but barring injury, they'll almost certainly make the play-in tournament, which leaves three teams for the final two play-in spots. The Spurs, who are 25 and 26, the Warriors, who are 25 and 28, and the Pelicans, who are 24 and 29. Which of these three teams doesn't make it? And I just want to say right now, I swear if Zion is not in the playoffs, I might lose my shit. Well, Oswee... Prepare to lose your shit, because I think that's what's going to happen here. It's it's the worst outcome 
And you could argue that the NBA built in the play-in tournament last year when it was just a play-in game to try to get New Orleans into the playoffs. And obviously they couldn't even make the play-in game. And now they expanded the play-in game to a legitimate play-in tournament where seeds 7 through 10 play. And, and for those who don't know how this works, and I don't blame you because this is the first time it's ever been done, seed 7 faces seed 8 and seed 9 faces seed 10. The winner of the 7-8 matchup is officially the seven seed for the playoffs, and they would face the two seed, which we think will probably be Phoenix, based on what we discussed earlier. The loser of the 7-8 matchup gets to play a second game against the winner of the 9 versus 10 matchup, and whoever wins that will be the eight seed and would face the Utah Jazz. But I actually think that poor Zion Williamson, who is literally destroying the NBA right now, is not going to make it. And it's because, first of all, the Golden State Warriors, out of the three teams you mentioned, they have the easiest remaining strength of schedule. And they're the only team that has a bona fide top-tier player who has been the best player on a finals team before in in Steph Curry. So I expect them to at least get it done. And, And Steph Curry is absolutely balling the whole season and especially the last few weeks. So it comes down then to between the Spurs and the Pelicans. And the Spurs have a two-game lead on the Pelicans, but the Spurs have the second hardest remaining strength of schedule and no real stars on their roster. On the other hand, the Pelicans have the 12th hardest remaining strength of schedule, but they have the benefit of Zion Williamson, who is putting up 26-7 and 3.5 assists on an absurd 62% from the field. Unfortunately despite being the most exciting and unique player in the NBA. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. You guys need to watch this guy. I mean, stream it, league pass. I don't care what you do. You got to see this guy play because sadly, you won't be seeing him in a few weeks because he is completely hindered by a roster that's not perfectly tailored to fit his strengths, including another center and Steven Adams taking up space from him. Brandon Ingram, who thinks that he's the star of the team. And Stan Van, who inexplicably has gone from an overachieving coach who I know myself and Eric have long had pretty high regard for for with those Orlando teams to now becoming someone who is just making questionable decision after questionable decision and trying to reinvent the wheel a little bit. You know, I'm going to go with Greg Popovich and the Spurs to just execute and, and not make mistakes, not beat themselves over a team like the Pelicans who seem to do nothing but beat themselves. I agree with everything that you said, AC. I definitely think the Pelicans are going to be out of this. But shout out to Zion Williamson, who in the last 11 games, he's only shot under 50% one time. And he routinely has field goal percentages in the 70s and 80s. The dude is an absolute beast. Also, shout out to the big fella for playing point guard the other night. And looking like Magic Johnson on steroids. Okay, he didn't pass as well as Magic Johnson. But (laughs) it was fascinating to see. He's so exciting. This guy, everyone knows that he wants to get to the rim. And you can't do anything to stop it. Even if you get in his way, he's not going to go over the top of you. Or he's going to nimbly sort of go around you. And what's so cool about Zion is he's someone that... I know Oswe and I, we saw clips of this guy when he was like in middle school and he was doing ridiculous dunks we're like who the hell is this who was like a grown man's body in middle school and to see him kind of come all the way through and become the number one pick and now be living up to that hype it's just awesome i have never seen a person shaped like an nfl offensive lineman move as well as zion williamson for sure and not just that even off the court i just like his temperament a lot he 
in his interviews, he's very courteous and respectful. He has so much talent and potential, and he doesn't seem to really pay too much attention to that. He seems very down to earth. Now, I don't want to project his personality in any way, but that was just the vibe I got from him. Starting from the draft onwards, that's basically all I've seen of him in the media. And that's what the reports about him are, too. If you listen to anybody, anyone in the Pelicans, from Stan Van to the coaching staff in general and, and his fellow players, I mean, J.J. Redick is extremely complimentary of him on his podcast. So people just seem to love Zion. He seems like a, a good dude. I just hope he doesn't become like Kevin Durant, where, oh God. We, where we thought he was this like great down-to-earth guy. And like under that veneer, it's like some dude. Burger accounts? <laughs> burner accounts and just a, a total head case weird fetishes which we don't need to talk about here <laughs> <laughs> yeah we talked enough about players other lives in the last episode we don't need to talk too much about kevin durant's exotic interests i like that euphemism exotic <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll leave it at that all right well i think that's a great place to stop for today i hope you all enjoyed today's episode Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check us out on social media at Brown Men Won't Jump. And also you can email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. We'll catch you in the next one, guys. Take care. Deuces.